Then he, that is David, took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There's no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. The people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some years ago, as I started my bachelor degree, one of the early classes that I took was ancient Hebrew. And my first test was very memorable. The night before the test, I remember going through all my homemade flashcards and parsing notes, and as the night wore on and my eyes became droopy, I decided that enough was enough, I needed to get some sleep. And the best thing about this test that was coming the next morning was that the prof was going to actually let us use our textbooks as we translated the exam passage. Seems like a pretty good deal, right? Now, I wasn't dumb enough to think that I didn't need to study, but... I was dumb enough to leave my textbook at home. (laughs) I remember looking into my bag and seeing no textbook. As the test lay in front of me and already looking at a bunch of three-letter Hebrew words that I had no idea what they were. I felt absolutely hopeless. I didn't know what to do at all. I kind of figured, I'm going to need to talk to the professor about this because if I go on from here 
this, I might as well not take the test. I, I might do better not taking the test than actually taking it. So I went up to the professor, and I, I, I went with as much humility as I could muster, and just to tell him my situation, not expecting uh, a, a reassigned date for the test or anything like that, I just simply said, hey, Dr. Souza, I forgot my, my Hebrew textbook, and I live a half hour away. Even if I went back to get it, by the time I got back, my next class would be half over anyhow. And I fully expected at the college level the professor to say, boy, that really stinks, doesn't it? And I would learn my lesson the hard way. But he didn't. He actually looked at his textbook, flipped through the pages to make sure there weren't any notes that he had written on the pages, took some things that he had put in the textbook out, set them on his desk, and can you believe it? He gave me his textbook. He shared his textbook with me. Now, of course, my first thought was, maybe he missed something, and maybe there is like an answer key in here, right? It was just a momentary thought, I promise. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a, like a scheme or anything like that. But it was amazing what sharing a textbook did for me to prob- probably bump me from like an F to like a C plus or something like that. I honestly don't remember what I got on that test. But I remember sitting there thinking, I can actually take the test now. I can actually move forward with this thing. I have hope. I have a reason to not just sit back and go, well, why bother, right? This is kind of where Israel is. Of course, the stakes are much higher for them. It's not the matter of an F on an exam. It's the matter of an F in life. It's a matter of death. Remember, these soldiers also probably still lack proper armaments. They had nothing like what you could see on the stage here this morning. Most likely, as if, if you remember earlier in 1 Samuel, we had a note that the Philistines did not allow anyone to be a blacksmith in Israel. If they needed to get any of their gardening equipment or their farming equipment sharpened or adjusted in any way, they had to go to the Philistines and get it approved by their approved blacksmiths. So they're standing there, likely, with shovels, pitchforks, or whatever sharp piece of metal they can come up with. You'll remember that Saul was the one, Saul and Jonathan were the only ones who actually had a sword in Israel. And Saul had taken his bronze helmet, his shiny sword, and the rest of his armor and tried to put it on David. Now, I had to carry this in this morning. This chainmail is heavy, right? It's, it's, it's a big deal. And you remember Goliath is wearing probably upwards of 120 pounds of armor, just in his armor, right? The idea that David couldn't wear this because it was too big or too heavy was less important than the fact that it was, as he said, untested. But what was tested, what we saw last week, was that God's means of delivering David from the past were proven and sure. So David's weapons, a wooden staff, some rocks, and a sling, may even seem more primitive than what the Israelites were carrying. And in their eyes, from what they could see on the outside, David is completely unimpressive. As we've learned from chapter 16, we need to take the rest of this story and realize that there's a way that people can look at the situations of life, and there's a way that God looks at the situations of life. And more importantly, not only situations, but looking at the heart of those he's called to those situations. 
David was unimpressive in Israel's eyes. He seemed unequipped to save them. He's not who they asked for, remember. They asked for a king like the nations. I bet at this point many of them are starting to wonder if this is really the end. They might even be remembering, well, God has saved us before. We remember the Ark of the Covenant. We remember Samuel. We remember the period of the judges. Remember, Israel's very serious about remembering their history. Whether that's a strong highlight of Israelite education at this point in history or not, it is a hallmark throughout their entire history. But I imagine that this might just seem like the end in the eyes of most of them. They are hopeless. And David's arrival, it's not giving them more hope. It's actually doing the opposite. It's the final nail in the coffin. It's making the hopelessness that they had before David show up seem like nothing in comparison. All their expectations for Saul, remember the one who stood head and shoulders above everyone else, the tallest one in Israel? All of their expectations for him that have completely failed in this moment. Saul is nowhere to be seen on the battlefield. And all of these expectations and the realities of Saul are kind of piling up in this moment. In their eyes, Saul presenting David as a champion could be the last and the worst thing that Saul could do for the nation. Remember, this is the same people again who asked Samuel only a few years earlier for a king like the rest of the nations, who could fight for them, who could be their champion, the one who stands in between their champion that they chose, Saul, was nowhere to be found. Or was anyone else except for this little shepherd boy and his stories. It's easy to imagine the prayers of the soldiers. Send a champion, someone to stand between us and the giants. And God sends David. And they say, oh, come on, not this guy, please. I could take this guy with arm, one arm tied behind my back. He's just a little shepherd boy. Send him back to his flock. His brother Eliab's words and perspective of David, I mean, it would have run rampant in the minds of the soldiers. Paul said, what is he even doing here? This is not what we need and not what we've asked for. And it's only increasing their hopelessness. It's fascinating that God, so many times in the Bible and so many times in our own lives, brings us to moments of utter hopelessness on purpose, in part due to the guilt of our sin of unbelief in part due to the fact of the world that lives around us. But ultimately, to teach us something incredibly important, that in the midst of this champion's challenge that we've looked at for two weeks and now on our third and final part, we've seen that Israel has been without a champion, without someone to stand in between, without someone to go on their behalf. We've seen that the one who's been appointed doesn't look like they're going to be enough. But today, as we all know how the story ends, we're going to see how God shares his victory with his people. Have you found that in moments facing great opposition, those moments where you might feel the most hopeless, that that's where we realize that what we really believe about God comes out? Whether we truly believe that prayer is a way to ask for help, that relying on his word is a sanctuary for our soul. All of our theology, all of our Bible study time, our time in Sunday school, our personal devotion time, the effectiveness of all those things is best shown when things seem hopeless. What we believe about God 
doesn't come out most definitively on Sunday mornings when everything seems to be going just fine. What we believe about God, what we truly believe about him, is most clear in times of opposition. So let's see what Goliath thinks about David. Remember, we already said with the kids in verse 43 and verse 44, Goliath looks at David from far away, and the text kind of gives us this idea that that Goliath had to keep moving closer to see who this little puny shepherd boy was on the other side of the valley. When he finally gets a clear look at him, he says, Am I a dog? What do you think I am? You come to me with sticks? The author tells us Goliath then cursed David by his gods and said, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. We already know from the attitude and the actions of the rest of the army of Israel that hearing those words would have immediately resulted in retreat, turning tail and running as fast as they can. David doesn't do that. In fact, David's standing firm in the valley in this moment is, in one sense, answering Goliath's question and meeting his challenge. His question, am I a dog? David's already answered this question, hasn't he? Do you remember back to verse 36 when David is talking to Saul and he says, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, and this Philistine is going to be just like one of them. So a dog? Sure, pretty much. That's what you are, Goliath. And yeah, I am coming to you with sticks and stones. I'm going to break your bones. Thanks. But he says, this uncircumcised Philistine, this one who does not know the Lord, nor is he a part of God's holy nation, is going to be just like a dog just like a bear, just like a lion. Why? Because David's such a good shepherd, because he's so skilled in battle? No, that's not it at all. Because he trusts in the faithfulness of God. He trusts in the sure victory that God promises his people. The question and command. Am I a dog? Yes. The command. Come to me. Okay, I will. But as far as David is concerned, there's something else to say about the menu for the birds and the beasts. Goliath is undoubtedly insulted and probably in a great rage at this moment. You can imagine his face turning beet red, his hands gripping the sword and the spear, his feet planted firm, ready to kill this little twig of a shepherd boy. So the opposition that he represents against God and the people of God are heightened with David's arrival. You can imagine that if it was indeed Saul, Goliath might have just stood there and laughed and said, oh, well, here you are finally, Saul. I've been waiting 40 days for you. Where have you been? All right, let's get this show on the road. Let's get this over with. But when he sees David, he is offended. How dare you bring a puny shepherd boy to fight me, a champion of champions? champion of Israel has appeared. The offense of it will spark the full rage of the enemy. So we noted in the beginning of the chapter, chapter 17, that Goliath has similarities with the ultimate enemy of God's people. He heaps curses and defiance against God and his people. Goliath's presence, just like the presence of the enemy in our own lives, and sharp words reflect our enemy's attempts to wear us down to keep us unable to move forward in our Christian life. And like Israel at this moment, we are often frozen by the reminders of our guilt and helplessness. 
Because remember, the soldiers, they're thinking, yeah, we need a champion. We need that guy that we know we need, that we want, and we want him now. But the reality is, is that they asked for a champion, and their idea of a champion has completely failed. And so now, all that's left, as it were, is God's champion. You know, this reminds me a little bit of an attitude of prayer that we have. You know, a lot of times we face overwhelming opposition, terrible circumstances financially or health-wise or relationally, and, and so many of our conversations end with, all I can do is pray. And, and it matters how we say that, right? Because if we kind of say, well, I've done all I can, now all I can do is pray. We present prayer as a last resort, as the thing that we've kind of kept in the back of our minds that maybe we thought we should do, but we're not going to engage in it unless we finally come to the end of ourselves. So when we say, all I can do is pray, maybe what we should be saying is, all I can do is pray. All I can do is give this to the hands of the Lord and trust him with it and praise God that that's all that I can do. That's one of the differences between David and the rest of Israel. David stands alone as the one who says, all I've got is the Lord. You come to me with sword and spear. I'm getting ahead of myself, I know. But you come to me with sword and spear, he says to Goliath. I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And it doesn't matter how mad Goliath gets. It doesn't matter what imaginations stir in his head about how he's going to absolutely smash David into the ground and humiliate all Israel before finally wiping them all out matters is that in our helplessness, we have an option to either trust in our own helplessness or to trust in the Lord to be our help. David's victory begins with his rebuttal to Goliath. Look at verse 45 with me, if you would. I just referred to it, but let's read it again. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David's victory begins in his words. In his mind, the victory is already won because it's God's work, not his own. He realizes that the God who lives outside of time and space has already ordained the end of this encounter, and he has full faith that God is the one who is going to redeem him in it to deliver him from the hand of the giant, just as he's redeemed him and delivered him in the past. The Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll cut off your head. And you and your buddies are going to be dinner for the birds and the beasts. Not hopelessness, but assurance in David's heart. As complete as the hopelessness of Israel is, so complete is David's confidence in the Lord's victory. Goliath has defied the living God. And Goliath doesn't have the firepower to back it up. That's what David realizes. John Piper says in a sermon series he did called The Spectacular Sins and God's Glo Global Purposes, a really long, beautiful sermon series title, but mainly Spectacular Sins and God's Purpose in them. He says, the cure for wimpy Christians is weighty doctrine. David had weighty doctrine on his heart and mind that day. I'm ashamed to say that I am often a wimpy Christian because I don't rest in that weighty doctrine. That weighty doctrine that when we think about it, we think about the truth of who God is, we realize that everything else just kind of fades away in light of who God truly is as he presents himself in his word. This is why fear and hopelessness can be so crippling. 
why we can become, in one sense, wimpy Christians. Because we rejected the weighty and glorious truth of who our God is. David's theology, everything he knows about his God, overcomes whatever hopelessness might have knocked on the door of his heart. We need to be so prepared as well. What a good moment for us as we see David's words to be reminded that we have this whole book of Psalms, many of which are written by him and some others, that present the truth of who God is in the midst of facing opposition. Read the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. Store them in your heart. Rely on them in those moments where you feel helpless and rejoice that in your helplessness, God is giving you a clear way to his salvation. The cure for wimpy Christians is weighty doctrine. So when opposition comes in your life, what truths of God will outweigh the assault of the enemy? What truths about God are bigger than you facing a nine-foot-tall giant? David lets Goliath know what will happen, but then he tells him why it's going to happen. First, David's victory has a global effect. Look down at verse 46, if you will, please. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. And yes, I'm going to read that verse as many times as I can. (laughs) I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That, this is a so that, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Do you see God's global purpose for his glory in David's words? And why you face opposition today? Because most of the people who might look into your life may in fact be those who don't know the God of Israel. And it is your job in these showdown moments to reflect the truth of this God. David tells him what's going to happen. He tells him why it's going to happen. Goliath has been acting as if the Lord has been defeated or that he's far away or that he never existed. What's the big thing that we like to say? And so they made eight or ten movies off of it. God's not dead, right? Well, that original Time Magazine article that came out some decades ago was in response to a point in American history that, that people realized, you know what? Maybe God is dead. Maybe there is no God. Maybe all this Christianity stuff is just a joke. Just something to keep people busy on Sunday because we don't know what else to do. David proclaims the living God, church. And so must we. The glorious victory of the shepherd is going to make something very clear to the world around. David doesn't need weapons to match Goliath's because he comes in the name of the Lord. And the world is going to know it. Second, the Lord's victory through the shepherd will have a transforming effect on the hopeless, shattered, lifeless people of Israel. Those who see this victory will know with certainty, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the Lord saves not with sword or with spear. They need to know this because they've put all their trust in a king like the nations who will fight their battles for them. The Lord will never save in the way that we expect. How has he saved us, church, from our sin? He sent his only son to come and just destroy sin, Satan, and death, and then to go back up to heaven and sit in glory? No, to be humiliated on a cross. The Lord does not save in the way that we expect. 
And if that is the foundation of your life, that Christ has saved you through sacrifice, through substitution, why should we expect that God's going to come in, wave his magic wand, and make our lives easy? He's not going to save us in the way that we expect. He's going to save us in a way that shows that in our utter hopelessness and inability to move forward, he is able to share his victory with us. And this is what's so important for us to see today, church. The point of the Philistine opposition, remember, the Philistine, Goliath calls himself. It's clearly been the result of Israel's faithlessness before the Lord. Goliath and the allowance of Goliath to the valley of Elah by the Lord over all things is a big, ugly, tall sign to the people of God to repent, to turn from the wickedness of all the things they've done thus far. Domesticating God to fit their agenda, putting a leash and a collar on him, acting like they're, he's their pet and can do whatever they want. Forgetting him and acting like the world around and ultimately demanding from him a king that would be like all the other godless kings of the nations so that they could look like everyone else. Church, we're not designed to look like everyone else, are we? We're weirdos. We are the ones that go, here comes David, the shepherd boy, yes! And everyone else looks in the army like, is this guy serious? Is he like off his meds or something? What's, what's he doing here? But through that state of faithlessness that we so often find ourselves, because we're not always the ones going, yay, David, the shepherd boy. We're usually the ones shaking in our boots hoping that something else happens, something moves us away from the conflict. And through all of that, God has been showing them how he doesn't work despite our sin, or he doesn't work around our sin, but he actually works through our sin. Not in a way that he shares in the guilt of our sin and faithful, faithlessness, but in a redemptive way. Because again, it was at the cross where Jesus was crucified by wicked people, where the worst, in one sense, the worst picture of evil was ever displayed in killing the innocent Son of God. God worked in those very means, not just in spite of or around or I'm going to figure something out. It was through that terrible sin that God brought a glorious victory. He brings victory on the same battlefield of defeat and hopelessness. So David's weighty doctrine turns into a glorious victory. Let's look at this last moment, and I'll, I'll remind you that this happens very quickly. This is not like that epic last battle scene in a superhero movie where the hero fights the villain for a good five or ten minutes, and boy, it seems like I don't know what's going to happen. This is over like an old western. It's a quick draw moment. Who's going to be the fastest? Who's going to act? Because there's one second and everything changes. Verse 48, the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly. Do you notice David is always running in this chapter? He never is just like, maybe I'll go. He is like, wow, love that. Don't forget that. David put his hand in his bag, took out, remember, a stone. And this wasn't like a stone that he had like sharpened. You know, it's going to be like an arrowhead that's going to pierce the skull of, the, of Goliath. This is just a regular old stone. It's smooth. A smooth stone. He knew it would fly well. <laughs> he pulled a stone out of his bag. 
He slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. And the reading in between the lines that we need to do after that is to imagine all the soldiers with their chins on the floor. This is not what they expected. Kids, we were talking, we know this is what to expect. We know what's going to happen in the end of the story. They had no clue. They had no hope. The, the giant is face down on the ground. Can you imagine the imprints in the grass after this guy falls over? So David prevailed over the Philistine, verse 50. And the author wants us to remember He prevailed with what? A sling and a stone. That was it. There was no sword in the hand of David. Now that serves two purposes because one, it reemphasizes that the Lord doesn't save by sword or spear. But it also emphasizes that David said something he was going to do earlier. Kids, do you remember what he said he was going to do? After he he knocked down Goliath, what did he say he was going to do? Thank you. Yes. Right. Now, He's not going to just do that miraculously. What does he do? Does he go over to somebody and say, hey, pass me? No, they don't have any proper weapons for this. He doesn't go back to Saul and say, you know what? In fact, I do need that sword. No, rather, he takes the sword of Goliath, which we're going to see later on in 1 Samuel 2. It's a very cool item in the rest of the story. He takes Goliath's sword, drew it out of its sheath. And imagine, this is a big sword, right? (laughs) Little David is holding this thing. And he's going to use it, I just kind of imagine in like a, like a quick guillotine kind of moment, like lifting it up and dropping it down as fast as he could. I'm sorry the sermon's getting a little rated R this morning, but it's the Bible. He cut off the Philistine's head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, they ran away. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. They chased the Philistines back to Goliath's hometown. As David held up Goliath's head in the valley, you can imagine what changed in the hearts and minds of the Israelites. They're renewed. They're brought back to life. Goliath has become like his god Dagon. Do you remember when the ark was in the temple of Dagon and Dagon's statue was right next to it? The next morning, Dagon's head is cut clean off. So now Goliath is mimicking what he's worshipped. It's a good lesson for us, right? We're going to end up being like the thing that we worship, truly. And we know that's true because not only does Goliath end up like what he worships, but look at the effect of the Israelites again. Israel becomes like its savior. They're rushing after the Philistines. Remember, David's doing all this running. He's modeling for them the sure victory of God, and now they are not just walking in that victory. They are running in that victory. They are galvanized or excited to life, to zeal, to chase down their enemies all the way back to Goliath's hometown. Now, certainly they would tell the story until their dying days, right? Any social gathering, what's the story that old Ahab is going to share? Or I don't know why I picked Ahab. You know, whatever soldier was there, you know, you invite him to a party, what's he going to tell you about? He's going to tell you about the day that he saw a nine-foot giant fall flat on his face and end up decapitated. Not just that. They would say that day when King David was just a shepherd boy. He wasn't even old enough to stand with the rest of the soldiers in the battle lines. 
He came with a shepherd's staff in his hand. He took a stone and a sling and killed the greatest warrior they had ever seen. By the shepherd's victory, they were freed. The victory of David didn't result in his reward only, but that victory was shared with Israel, with the whole nation. One man's act had an effect that transformed the lives of everyone else around him. To them, death was dead. They felt they could take on the whole Philistine army, and so they did. They chased him down. At that moment in verse 52, those soldiers who for 40 days were shattered by fear were put back together. So we must take our hopelessness and see what we need to do with it today. Do we have a shepherd today whom we can look to and be galvanized to life? Goliath's challenge was not a tournament where the only one who benefits is the last man standing. David's victory in a one-on-one bout against Goliath had a direct and immediate impact on those whom he saved, those for whom he was the champion. And so our champion does for us today. When we consider Christ's victory at the cross, we aren't looking at someone who won the tournament of humanity. He wasn't just the last one standing as we were all clawing our way to the top to try to find that top spot where one person could receive all the benefits of victory. Rather, Christ's victory at the cross and his resurrection from death grant him all the glory of the greatest victory, and he shares the spoils of war with us. Eternal life, joy, peace, the presence of God, the hope that sin will not have the last laugh, the surety that death is dead. Jesus isn't just another David. As we've been saying in this chapter, he is the true and better David. Timothy Keller says, David saved his people by risking his life, but Christ saved his people by laying down his life. Jesus doesn't just come and say, hey, I'm going to do that thing that David did. He comes and says, that thing that David did was just a picture, just a foreshadowing, just a small taste of what I was going to do. And the extent and the price that I paid is going to be far greater than anything David ever faced or any one person could. David was a shadow of the one to come. But why is that important? It's important because the hopelessness in your life today is an echo of the hopelessness that sin has brought you to. Just as God allowed this crisis for Israel in order to bring them to a place of realizing their need for grace, unmerited favor, we find ourselves with the need for this reminder daily. That's why we're going to come back to communion again in a little bit. David's weighty doctrine, the truth he knew of God that caused him to rush into battle with Goliath, was still only part of what we can know today in the gospel of Christ. We face moments of great opposition where we are allowed by a good God to realize our utter hopelessness. But at the same time, to see that there's great confidence available in Christ. Church, I know that's tough. We need to grapple with the reality of what we cannot do and rest in the truth and the power of what God can do at the same time. We don't mix them together and say, oh, God has made me an overcomer on my own, and so now I'll go and face everything in my own strength. No, we face the world in the strength of Christ, the victory he's already won. Victorious life in Christ is one of confidence and assurance. 
or a confidence that doesn't just tack on to the Christian life the way we get add-ons to insurance plans or anything like that. The Christian life is meant to be a humble life, seeing our utter need for Christ, our champion, but also in Christ meeting our need, we live a life of confidence, a life of assurance that shares in the victory of our shepherd. Church, you ought not just want this confidence, you need this confidence to press on. Andrew Peterson wrote in one of his songs that Christ has beaten death at death's own game. When David removed Goliath's head from which the taunting, condemning, and cursing of God's people came, it was just a shadow picture of that great victory that Christ won for us, that he shares with us. And the New Testament confirms that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory. And what is that victory? Well, the sting of death is in sin. God's taken the sting out of death. There's nothing to fear in death. But let's all be honest. We all fear death. Even the bravest among us that say, I could die today and be totally fine. Death is uncertain. It's unknown to all of us. So we're going to be afraid of it. But it's in those moments of fear and hopelessness and whatever else we're facing too that we need to look to the victory of our Savior the one who shares his life with us. We need to trust in that. The victory Christ has won, the salvation he calls us to live in as overcomers and to proclaim to those others that are shattered by fear and hopelessness, we can't lose this. It's not ever going to vanish away. You know, Goliath was one Philistine. And yeah, they chase down the rest of them, but the Philistines are going to come back. Saul's going to end up spending his life trying to get rid of the Philistines, and it's not going to be until after David becomes king that that threat is truly done with. But Paul says in Romans 8, in all these things, whether we face famine, persecution, nakedness, danger, or sword, in all these things we are more, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the victory that Christ has won. It cannot be lost. Israel would face new challenges, and so we will too. But we can face them with the surety of God's glorious victory. Would you pray with me, and then we'll sing one of our last songs together. Lord, thank you this morning that Christ has come to be victorious, to gain the victory, to be our glorious Savior, the shepherd of our souls. I pray, Lord, you would help us to walk in that truth daily, that as we face whatever we face when we go out these doors, we would have a confidence even greater than what David experienced, not because of our own selves, our own doctrinal knowledge, but because of what we do know of doctrine, what we do know of Christ because of what that doctrine really is. Christ has defeated death. We thank you for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.